welcome back to the All Things Connected podcast, where we go in-depth on the most pressing and fascinating issues of today with experts in their field. This is your host, Jared Hawking. A friendly reminder that if you're enjoying the show, please make sure to hit the subscribe button on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or the follow button on Spotify to become aware of new episodes. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Ming Kuo, Professor of Environmental Psychology at University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. Dr. Kuo is a very accomplished researcher whose work focuses on the connection between natural features such as trees, grass, and green space, and outcomes related to healthy human functioning such as crime and violence, well-being and attention, executive functioning, self-control, and learning. In addition to directing the Landscape and Human Health Lab at University of Illinois, Dr. Kuo is part of a number of panels informing the design of future cities, including for the city of Chicago. You might have heard Dr. Kuo on the episode of Hidden Brain from 2019 titled U2.0, Our Better Nature. In this conversation, we delve into Dr. Kuo's research and what it has revealed about the psychological and physiological benefits of exposure to nature the unsurprising disparities in the distribution of green spaces, the evolutionary explanation for why nature is so beneficial for us, and much more. I hope you find this conversation as fascinating as I did. And now I bring you Dr. Ming Kuo. All right, I'm here with Dr. Ming Kuo at the University of Illinois, who researches the aspects of environmental psychology and the ways that nature can have myriad benefits for our psychology and physiology. Dr. Kuo, thank you so much for joining me for a conversation today on the podcast. Thank you for having me. This is going to be truly exciting. And I originally came across your work on one of my favorite podcasts, the show Hidden Brain, uh, which with uh, the host Shankar Vedantam, and you gave a really interesting overview of your research there. I thought it would be great for our listeners to provide a little bit of context. I thought we could start out with a biographical question. And you've obviously done a lot of research looking at the physiological and psychological effects of urban nature, but initially started out actually investigating, as you you talked about there, um, looking at the adverse elements of urban environments. So can you kind of describe how your interests have evolved in these areas to bring you to your focus today? Yeah, um, it's kind of interesting because I think most researchers, not that there are that many of us, <laughs> but but I think most researchers who study the benefits of nature, the effects of nature on people are nature advocates, right? That's what drew, drew them to this area. And I really wasn't. Um, I was really interested in what I call the dark side of the <laughs> of the physical environment, the ways in which crowding or noise or being in an unsafe environment has debilitating effects on people. And so that was really my my love going into graduate school. And then the Forest Service um, issued a call for proposals saying, well, if you know, if you want to study the effects of nature in disadvantaged populations, then you know, apply to us. And I thought, ha, I can apply to study the effects of the inner city environment on people, which is, you know, that's a perfect storm of adverse environmental factors. And then I'll just include the trees, and but I'll tell them 
<laughs> I'll tell the Forest Service <laughs> that the the variables I'm most interested in are just in there as control variables. And then sure enough, the data said, well, you know what? Uh, trees really do matter. And so I've really just been kind of dragged into this by the data. I mean, I think I have become... In the course of all this, I have become kind of an advocate because it's not possible to know this, the evidence in this area and not become an advocate. But I definitely wasn't, I wasn't, I didn't come in with this uh, kind of hidden agenda. Mm -hmm. And you wrote one of the seminal papers really in kind of urban planning, urban infrastructure and the benefits of nature, which we read in my program, one of the first papers I read at my master's program was the effects of crime, the decrease in crime associated with more green spaces, which I know runs uh, counter actually to some hypotheses, which is that green spaces could provide cover for criminals. So it's interesting that you, while kind of looking at some of these maybe uh, adverse, uh, as you say, aspects of urban environments actually found that they run counter they, to the traditional hypotheses. So that was interesting. Mm -hmm. And actually, one of the most interesting aspects, Dr. Quo, of that interview you gave with um, Shankar Vedantam was this kind of evolutionary explanation for why nature is so beneficial for us. And I, I really, I hadn't thought about that before. And it's probably not something that a lot of people think of day to day is how our ancestors evolved and how the environments we now live in are drastically different than those. And so we know that we came out of the forests of Africa. We are hominids and have, have evolved from in, in these canopies and these savannas. And uh, now we're clustering in these dense, very densely populated urban spaces with skyscrapers and everything else. Mm -hmm. And um, it's very obvious that <laughs> these are completely different environments than those that we have traditionally involved in. So from your vantage point, I know it may, might seem obvious, but what are the ways that uh, the environments we choose to live in today, particularly those urban environments, are different than the environments from which we evolved? Well, I think the central insight in this area, in the, in the, in the relationship between our evolutionary environments and our, our modern day environments is that, you know, as humans, we live all over the planet. Like there's, <laughs> there's very few places that we don't find human habitation. And we've gotten to be pretty good at shaping the environment for ourselves. And you would think that we would shape our environment in, in all the ways that matter, right? So in fact, um, if, if you're not, well, obviously there are people who are poor and, and don't have sort of what we consider fit habitats, but many, many people live in what we think of as fit habitats, but actually have so little contact with nature that it's probably resulting in significant deficits. So as, as Richard Louv has called it, nature deficit disorder. Um, so I think the kind of interesting thing is, or one interesting point here is that while you would think that if we have the resources and full choice about where to live or how to live, um, we would make good environments for ourselves, but it's not clear that we actually know fully what we as humans need to thrive. Uh, let me, if I, if I may give you a, an analogy, even those of us who have enough money to be able to afford a full range of what, what we could eat, <laughs> we don't necessarily choose the diets that are best for ourselves. So uh, right. the Western diet is actually quite, quite problematic for our, for our bodies. And in the same way, I think we've, we're missing a key ingredient 
in our modern urban environments or, or often missing a key ingredient, which is contact with nature. Yeah, it's it's an interesting line of thought because in a way humans have, and I'd be curious to get your thoughts on this, humans in a way have kind of overstepped the natural selection process. We've asserted ourselves in such a way that almost, um, you know, I mean, if you look at any other species, if you were to take that species out of its natural habitat, the habitat in which it evolved in the environment and the food sources there, then it would really um, maybe suffer some devastating consequences. But for humans, we are somewhat thriving in urban environments where certainly our population is growing. And if you look at um, other examples, I, I think one interesting example is the fact that obesity continues to rise, but which is obviously deleterious to humans' health. But at the same time, our population continues to grow. So we're kind of, uh, we, we're asserting so much pressure on the natural selection process that maybe these things are more subtle, that they're not necessarily having um, an effects on our overall fitness. They're maybe having more individual psychological and physiological effects. Would you agree with that? Or is there more nuance to that? So the great uh, biologist E.O. Wilson says that, um, Organisms housed in unfit habitats undergo psychological, social, and physical breakdown. And um, that actually (laughs) very neatly describes what we see for people who are housed without, with insufficient access to, to nature. So it's not necessarily, I mean, clearly we're not sort of all keeling over and dying if we don't have access to nature but we show systematic deficits in a whole variety of areas. So in the psychological area, we have less self-discipline, we're more aggressive, we're less smart. (laughs) On the social side, I think I already mentioned aggression, uh, or we're we're less pro-social as well. And on the physical side, there's like a whole panoply of diseases that are more common if you have less access to nature. And we can even trace the sort of specific short-term effects that can contribute to those long-term effects. So let me just give you one example Um, for obesity, for instance, the greener your neighborhood, the less you are likely to be obese. And that's, that's kind of obviously true. I think you might guess that we or might people, people might know that in fact, wealthier people tend to be, tend to have less obesity, but it turns out that even when you control for income, you still see these effects. And furthermore, we can we can show that when you take a person for a walk in a green area versus um, a nice urban area that doesn't involve greenery, they have changes to their blood chemistry that affect the intake of... It's, so there are adipose cells, are the cells in our body that, that contain fat, it changes the metabolism of those cells. So we're able to see these effects at the cellular level. And then we can also see these, what we believe to be effects uh, at the, at the population level. Very interesting. And so what do we believe? I know you've written papers about the mechanisms to support this notion, notion of the physiological effects. Is it mostly an evolutionary explanation that we're, now back in our environment that's supported our evolutionary history or are there what are what are the mechanisms underlying those physiological changes 
Right. So I think I have two answers to this. The first is that the evolutionary explanation makes a lot of sense. It really sort of beautifully fits what we're observing. The other is that I we evolved in nature, and the idea in, in Wilson's quote is that we are sort of exquisitely tuned to our evolutionary habitats. And you can't really mess with that habitat without without risking <laughs> messing with whatever organism you're talking about. So for example, in the um, in the world of zoos, um, what we've discovered over decades is that, you know, at first, zoos would just be these cages where you do this long march on asphalt <laughs> past all these cages, you know, a tiger and then a, a koala and then, a, a, you know, birds of some kind. And each animal was just housed in this little cage that was just a little bit bigger than the animal. And it turned out that that was phenomenally expensive because animals housed in this way, even though they had safety and they had food and they had water, they would die off at, you know, really high rates, much, much shorter longevity than they would have in the wild where Mm -hmm. they didn't necessarily have guaranteed food and safety. Right. And so Mm. it turned out over, over the decades that zoo people, zookeepers, discovered the more they mimicked the evolutionary environment of an organism, the better that organism tended to thrive. And what we're seeing is a a strikingly similar pattern in people. Very interesting. And we just talked about, you talked about kind of the, at the cellular level and at the metabolic level, some of these positive effects of of nature. But I think folks would probably be interested in some of your studies that, um, including the attention restoration hypothesis, you you touched on briefly the idea that levels of violence and aggression go down with exposure to nature. So what has your research revealed, Dr. Kuo, about the correlates between these, these factors, exposure to nature in different urban settings? Yeah, sure. So, so one line of work has examined uh, Chicago public housing residents um, who are more or less randomly assigned to identical buildings and apartments in the same setting where, you know, obviously some buildings will have a little bit more greenery immediately outside them than others. And what we're seeing is that the folks living who are randomly assigned to the greener settings are doing better on a whole, whole range of outcomes. So, they're better able to concentrate, they have better social ties, they are more likely to help out or be helped by other neighbors in their in their building. They report less aggression and less violence, which we see echoed in crime statistics from Chicago Police Department. Oh, and also uh, children in these greener areas have more self-discipline, better impulse control, better delay of gratification. So People in the greener buildings are behaving or are functioning better in a whole range of different ways than than their counterparts in equal, you know, the same kinds of apartments, same kinds of apartment buildings that have less greenery. Yeah, that was really interesting. Just basically the same environment or same set of circumstances. Obviously, in in some ways, that there will be minute differences in terms of that person's lifestyle or things of that nature. But yeah, that was really, it it was almost a perfect experiment because you had a control 
with less exposure to nature and less green space and the 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 other setting that you were looking at uh, with more green space and what the effects of those were as far as the levels of aggression and the kids attention, as you said, in the apartment buildings. That was very interesting. So I think this for for those who are listening to this, Dr. Quo, they're probably imagining, okay, I know that experiencing nature is beneficial and maybe it will even influence uh, you know, the the neighborhood that I, I live in someday. Is there a kind of um threshold effect or or because I know you, there's this idea that maybe what if I were to just look at a screensaver with a beautiful background and imagine that I'm I'm in that place for five or ten minutes per day. Um right. Would this be sufficient? So is there a certain persistence or even proximity effect that comes into play here? And um, has your research revealed any insights into that question? Yeah, I think um, I think the question of dosage is really a, an interesting and important one. So like how much nature do you need to, <laughs> to have the, the good effects? I would say there's sort of at least two ways of summarizing it. One is just uh, even a little bit helps. So kind of, sh- kind of shockingly, we can, we can put somebody in an MRI and show them images of nature for five minutes. And we can see all kinds of changes in their parasympathetic nervous activation, um, brain, uh, different parts of the brain lighting up. Um, so there's sort of very fast effects from even pretty, you know, like a picture of nature is not nature, right? So I would I would guess that if you had people spending five minutes a day uh, with a little virtual nature dose, that that would have a real impact on them. That said, every bit more helps. So, so for example, if you're actually in nature, then not only getting the, the sights, but you're also getting the sounds and the, the scents. And it turns out that the sounds and the scents both have their own independent contributions to our well-being and our functioning. So um, there's a kind of funny study where folks in Japan took people out and um, <laughs> they bring them into, into the woods and then they put them there with a sitting on a chair with a shower curtain around them. <laughs> so they, okay. So they can't see what's going on. And then they, you know, they measure physiological and other impacts and you see, oh, you know, it turns out that uh, sitting in nature with a shower curtain around you does have a, a whole variety of beneficial impacts. And sitting in nature, if you have vision and smell, then that's that's even better. <laughs> so every aspect of the dose that we've tested does matter because there are there are chemical elements in the environment that affect our our well being. There are biological microbio, microbial elements in the nature in nature that help us. Um, there are things in the soil that are good for us. So, so just having a bit of visual exposure to nature helps, but it doesn't remotely give you the whole dose. It's sort of like I don't think the five-minute virtual dose quite really really does the job. Yeah, and actually, to add a few things there, one of which we're going to talk about more in depth. The New York Times just released this interesting study of different. I don't know if it was a study in the traditional research sense, but it was kind of an overview of different urban environments like Baltimore and Washington, D.C., and how from block to block from adjacent neighborhoods, the temperature in those neighborhoods can be 
drastically different, even like 10 Fahrenheit degrees Fahrenheit different. Mm-hmm. And that's because of decades of policy of underinvestment in um, greenery in those neighborhoods. And these are largely populated by uh, people of color. So that's that's something we're going to talk about in a second, which is interesting. So there's kind of this uh, heat effect, you know, obviously there's um, we learned about in our program, these um, I think they're called heat jungles or, or con- <laughs> concrete traps heat very well. It's uh, right. it doesn't reflect the heat very well. It absorbs a lot of heat. So when you have very little greenery and you have uh, more concrete, it's going to be much hotter and that's just more oppressive. Uh, there's there's less shade. And then the other thing would be the um, oxygen filtration or, or air quality. How mm-hmm. when you have uh, when you go into a forest and you're away from ideally, um, you know, the uh, urban pollution, you're breathing much cleaner air, which has more positive effects, not only pulmonary effects, but also cognitive effects. So there's those uh, those few things as well. So before we talk about the kind of disparities in distribution of green spaces, which uh, is really interesting because the more and more, you know, for my my listeners who are listening, each episode, they'll see that these kind of um, uh, policies, even in the, the 50s and 60s and way back, are still having effects today on many different levels. So we're going to talk about that. Mm-hmm. But for, I think, I think for those who have maybe not gone through a graduate program, we often hear Dr. Quo that kind of a, an elementary explanation of causality or, or correlation. So mm-hmm. for example, people say, well, I, t- I took this medicine and I got better. Therefore it must've been the medicine, or we know that this policy was passed and afterwards um, rates of crime went down or social progress went up, whatever the variable being measured there, you know, whatever the change is, people explain it in a sense of it must have been this policy. Mm-hmm. But obviously there's um, exogenous factors that could have an effect so that there, uh, it, it could have been that, you know, those those consequences could have happened regardless and or it could have been due to some other variable that was not being measured. Maybe during that week that you took the medicine, maybe you actually, your system just got rid of the virus on its own, or mm-hmm. you were in a better, cleaner environment. And that's what happened. So there's there's many explanations. So this kind of begs the question of correlation versus causality. So on the issue of the nature and its physiological effects, I'm curious how you've been able to disentangle these potentially confounding variables. I know that you mentioned earlier that you actually included those. So in other words, maybe there were elements of this situation in Chicago where maybe uh, population density of those apartment buildings or maybe familial ties within those neighborhoods or maybe in the in the crime study, maybe an increased police presence actually made the difference and not the, the nature. So how have you been able to kind of disentangle these variables and leave with a pretty strong assertion that nature is playing a significant role. Right. Um, Well, I guess I would say that the job of science is actually not, (laughs) it's almost as though, so people think, oh, if I study the benefits of nature, then my job is to measure the nature and then measure the benefits and then see if there's a relationship. But that's actually not the job at all. The job is, uh, if I see a relationship between nature and the benefits, what are all the possible other things that could explain this relationship? And then figuring out what those are and then addressing them some way, either by, so for example, 
I live in Urbana-Champaign, which is about two and a half or three hours drive from Chicago. So why am I driving all the way to Chicago to study people, the effects of nature on people, when obviously, you know, there's public housing, there's there's residential areas in Champaign-Urbana? Well, it's because Chicago public housing offers us a natural experiment that helps us answer this question. So just like you would, if you were going to study the effects of carrots on rabbits, you would take uh, a whole bunch of rabbits and you would randomly assign them to the carrot cages and the carrot, no carrot cages. And then you would keep everything else about their environment as, as similar as possible. And then if you still saw a benefit, the rabbits in the carrot cages are doing better than the rabbits in the no carrot cages then you would have some confidence that it's not because there are the rabbits in the carrot cages were somehow privileged <laughs> or doing better in the first place. And it's also not because of the environment because the environment is the same. So the only thing that's different between those two situations, the one set of cages and the other set of cages is that some of them are getting carrots. So that's mm-hmm. why we would go all the way to Chicago to study this question is we have to the whole job is really figuring out how do we control for all these other factors that could explain what we're seeing. Yeah. And for those who maybe have not taken a upper level statistics class, the idea of controlling for, which we hear a lot, is basically collecting data on those other things and seeing what comes out as statistically significant. So you you mentioned that you're not just collecting data on the uh, intended outcome variable of crime rates or level of aggression, you're also including those many of those other things that could potentially explain the difference, right? Right. Right. Well, we we actually, there's a couple different ways we do it. One thing is to just uh, keep everything about the environment exactly the same. Then there's nothing to measure because you know everything is the same. But um, in obviously in Chicago public housing, I'm not able to control the entire environment. And so what we do is we check all these other possible differences. And so we look at, okay, I'm looking at crime in, uh, in Ida B. Wells. Um, let's make sure that the higher crime buildings don't have, say, more apartments in them, or that they um, are near a police station, or they are near a school. Or So what other aspects of the environment could explain a difference in crime. And we we measure those and we check that there aren't any differences between our high nature apartments and our low nature apartments. Right. And so talking about Chicago, Chicago was not one of the places in, in this New York Times study, but it struck me, I remember reading this recently, and I remember came come away thinking, there are not many things in our society that are not many things that are equitably distributed in green spaces and access to public parks is just another one of those. And this was a really interesting takeaway because this is having a extreme effect on the, as we mentioned, the, the temperature in these different neighborhoods. So this article is called How Decades of Racist Housing Policy Left Neighborhoods Sweltering. And it says that Buildings and paved services like major roadways, uncovered parking lots, and industrial zones have amplified heat while large parks and other green spaces have cooled down the surrounding areas. And this is due in large part due to the fact that in the 20th century, local and federal officials 
who are usually white, passed policies that basically segregated people into these different neighborhoods, segregated people of color into certain neighborhoods, and then disinvested in them, failed to create green space, failed to plant trees in those areas. And this has resulted in large disparities in distribution of green space that would cool down some of these these neighborhoods. So I'm curious, as you were studying this, if you noticed a, a pretty severe inequity in distribution of green spaces and how how this might um you know if affect people's livelihoods in those areas yeah I, so so as you say right policies like redlining have had huge impacts in shaping the environments that people are living in now so policies from the past are are definitely still sort of holding sway on what's going on now and then i would i would say regarding the the differences in greenery across different neighborhoods. There's a there's a saying among people who do who look at imaging uh, data of the of the world that you can see poverty from space. Um, at, you can see it at night by the the number of lights. So underdeveloped areas have very few lights, and developed areas have a lot of lights. Um, but you can also see it during the day uh, for actually kind of a different swath of income. But basically, if you look at almost any city um, in any country, the greener the area is, the more likely it is to be wealthy. You can literally tell which neighborhoods are poorer just by the amount of greenery and parks that's visible from space. So it's a very stark uh, very large, very consistent difference. And I think, I mean, b- before doing all this work, I would have said, well, you know, that's that's kind of sad and parks and greenery are nice. And it's really, it's really a pity that, you know, that not everyone can have them. But I would have said that the funding priorities in, in poorer neighborhoods should be other things, right? Things that are functional, right? Let's make sure everybody has has a, a roof that doesn't leak, right? Or or adequate heat. So there are all kinds of things you could spend money on in poor neighborhoods that might seem more important than greenery. But I think the last three decades of research in this area is telling us, uh, no, shockingly, greenery is not just something that's kind of nice or aesthetically pleasing, but it's actually functional. People do better they are their better selves when they have regular and frequent access to some, at least visual access to greenery. So these, what seems like, uh, there's a saying that greenery is just the parsley around the pig. <laughs> if, if you're, if you're serving. I haven't heard that one. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, no, it's not, it's not uh, just a, a nice visual element. It's actually a functional part of the meal. And so when we when we've got, had policies that created very green wealthy areas and very not green poor areas that's going to have really systematic effects on levels of poverty continuing and uh, levels of aggression I, I just want to mention if there are 10 degree difference in heat in poor neighborhoods that would also contribute to higher levels of aggression in those neighborhoods because heat has very clearly documented impacts on on aggression. What's so, the plausible explanation there? 
Well, there's a couple things. One is just with heat, people tend to be tend to come outside and therefore have more interaction, which is so there's more opportunities for for aggression to arise. People also become more irritable in the face of heat, and you wouldn't think that would be a big deal, but when you have a lot of irritated people <laughs> interacting with each other, then it's not like everybody who is in a warmer place or a hotter place is going to be is going to become aggressive, but the the likelihood of any given interaction becoming, you know, aggressive and even violent is just that much higher. And so. Right. Um, wow. That has super interesting social consequences because as we know, it's just an unfortunate fact that certain communities uh, have higher rates of crime. And it would be interesting to find out if those communities and neighborhoods are lacking the the green infrastructure that would allow reprieve from the heat. And if there's a correlation there, because... There is, actually. It's it's really clear. And that, that finding, I mean, we found that in Chicago public housing uh, many decades ago now. And there's been a ton of research since in different places, uh, Baltimore, whole, I don't, I can't even remember all the places. Um, there's a really great study by some folks in, at UPenn, I think, who looked at cleaning and greening vacant lots. So they randomly assigned vacant lots in Philadelphia I think, to either receive cleaning and greening um, or not. And then they watched what happened as a result to crime crime around those areas. And you see shockingly large decreases in crime uh, after cleaning and greening of vacant lots. Well, it seems that in more ways than one, we might save the world or at least make a hugely positive impact on the world by planting more trees. It, it could have myriad consequences. And maybe we should rethink all of these kind of artificial surfaces and artificial interjections into our lives that we've found from harnessing energy from fossil fuels buried deep below the ground as opposed to the wind and the sun and water and uh, knocking down trees and putting artificial concrete on there. It seems like there's many ways where we've already been given the requisite environment that uh that will maintain our psychological and physiological well-being and just don't make that many changes to it. Um, I think this is a good segue, Dr. Quo, to talk about kind of increasing urbanization and the fact that mm -hmm. across the country, cities are really where a lot of the economic opportunity is. Places like San Francisco and New York and Los Angeles, uh, Houston is just exploding in population. Mm -hmm. So as more and more people move to cities where the economic opportunity is, there seems to be a kind of trade-off between finding that economic opportunity and potentially being in a place like New York City that lacks the nature of other places um, that might be like Ann Arbor, Michigan, that might be more green and have more trees per capita. So do you have any advice for how people should think about these trade-offs or maybe there's certain yeah. neighborhoods within those big cities where people can find the right balance? Yeah, I actually, um, I was actually asked to speak at the World Economic Forum in Davos about exactly this. So on the one hand, we have this 
overwhelming urbanization of of people all over the world, actually, not just the U.S. So the we are becoming an urban species. And um, on the one hand, we're becoming an urban species. And on the other hand, there's a concern that, wow, we're having all kinds of uh, mental health issues. And and to some extent, it seems to be tied to urbanization. And, you know, do we, can we, can we urbanize and not go mad or not suffer huge rates of depression? And actually, you would think my, my research suggested, no, we can't, we have to choose. Um, but in fact, uh, it turns out that the amount of, of urban or artificial stuff in the landscape is less important to the human psyche than the presence of vegetation and greenery and, and bits of nature. So um, nature views can be really helpful. You don't have to have Central Park immediately outside your door to get the benefits of nature. A tree-lined street makes a huge difference. So incorporating greenery in the urban fabric is quite effective and and helpful. You don't have to be in, you know, Yosemite <laughs> to to get the benefits of nature. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I realize I may be sounding like I'm kind of speaking at cross purposes with myself because on the one hand I said, well, every little bit helps. And on the other hand, I'm saying, well, as long as you have a very green urban environment, you're, you're in good shape. I guess I want, I just think both are true. <laughs> so we see, we see really kind of striking benefits after a three day weekend in a nature preserve, in a forest preserve. Um, and actually this is relevant to COVID. Uh, turns out that three days in a nature preserve boosts your natural killer cells, which are those are the cells that whose job it is to fight off viral infections. In this time of uncontrolled spread of, of viral infection, which kills a lot of people, contact with nature, sort of immersion in nature for three days can boost your natural killer, killer cells by 50%. It increases the number of these cells, these defenders. Um, it increases the number of defenders and it increases their activity how much they each defender does. And then even a month later, we can see that these defenders are up uh, over your baseline amount, roughly 25%. So those are big impacts. <laughs> and so yes, wilderness would be great. But um, at the same time, you can get very large impacts by just sort of thoroughly greening urban areas. So I don't think I don't think there's any call to have sprawl or to put everybody in the suburbs or everybody live in rural areas in in our findings. I think our findings indicate you can put people in even dense urban settings as long as you don't forget, you know, include rooftop gardens, include street trees, include planter boxes on people's um, windows. In all these different ways, you can infuse the urban fabric with with green. That's great. And so you mentioned that you gave a talk at the Davos Forum. Mm-hmm. What about urban planners? Have you been working with them or offered any insight? Are they interested in these findings? And are you seeing that they're incorporating this research into the future of cities, the way that cities will be designed? Yeah, our work actually for for decades now, our work has been reaching... I mean, urban planners are interested in this, right? <laughs> so so uh, the city of Chicago, actually, according to the Chicago Tribune, they embarked on their largest tree planting ever. 
uh, $10 million tree planting. Um, and the, at least according to the newspaper, they cited our findings as the rationale for that. And similarly, the U.S. Conference of Mayors has adopted urban forestry resolutions where, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the uh, urban for the, the resolution structure. It's always, whereas, blah, 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 be it resolved that. So that right. all the all the rationales uh, of the rationales for making sure we have proper funding of urban forestry. Many of them were, were findings from, from my lab. Excellent. And so we know that some of this research predates you, Dr. Kuo. I, I hate to say it that way, but oh, yeah. <laughs> I know it. <laughs> we know from kind of even the late 80s on that there's an increasing realization that exposure to nature has myriad benefits. And you have ties to the University of Michigan, even though you're now at the University of Illinois. Can you talk about your education there and some of the people you met along the way? Yeah, I'm actually sitting here in a U of M sweatshirt. So <laughs> so go blue. And cool. um, absolutely, I would not be doing this work. I would not have had the career I have had if it weren't for Stephen and Rachel Kaplan. Stephen Kaplan uh, at the University of Michigan was my advisor for for my PhD. And Rachel Kaplan, I got a a chance to work with her a little bit along the way. And they were um, and are just giants in the in this field. So if, if there's anyone who's, who's the founder of the, the field of research on the benefits of nature, I would probably nominate them. Mm -hmm. And Rachel's book, her 1988 book, The Experience of Nature, has that had a large impact on your career and the areas that you've wanted to research? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think, I think the reason, the reason I was able to do the work I have been is because of their work. So I would never, it would never have occurred to me to apply to the U.S. Forest Service for a, for doing research on the benefits of nature in inner cities. But I didn't know all the work that Stephen and Rachel had done. And there was a cool anecdote from that episode of Hidden Brain where I can't remember. I think I think it was, yeah, it was you describing how Rachel having kind of uh, been in the dungeons of the University of Michigan oh, right. buildings for so long, and then she came to prominence with that book, and then they moved her up to this third floor office where she had this beautiful view of the courtyard, and she's like, "Now I now I see what uh, my research was talking about." <laughs> Yeah, that's that was a great story. So she um, she used to have an interior office in the Dana Building, for those of you who know what that is, uh, where she just looked into kind of a gravel area with, if I remember, just like bricks going up. Um, so she had some sunlight, but it was it was completely barren. And then she moves into the third floor where her, she's in a corner office and she's in the canopy. I think uh, the experience kind of reinforced for her all all the findings she had contributed over the years. Mm-hmm. Well, Dr. Quo, this has been very fun. Just a few last questions for you. What questions remain unanswered? Where are you focusing your attention and research now? Well, I guess I there are two areas that seem particularly important to me. One is sort of documenting all the myriad ways in which our, the, as you were saying, our housing policies and our our investment policies in 
in different neighborhoods have shaped the experience of low income and or minority populations in our cities. Um, that if certain folks are systematically uh, getting less access to nature, and we now know that daily access to nature is actually very important for how well we function, then, you know, <laughs> that's got some pretty large implications. So kind of drawing that out, seeing what what actually, what we would expect, which of the things that we would expect are actually are true. So assessing that is one of the things I think needs doing. And another is looking at the physical health relationships. So for instance, what's the, uh, what's the effect of having access to nature on your ability to fight off viruses, including COVID? Or there's also really good work to be done on, it turns out that depression is vastly more likely in areas with lower levels of ambient tree color cover. Can we do some, can we do some real life experiments where we assign neighborhoods that don't have enough tree cover to receive tree cover? Can we see impacts on mental health as a result? Yeah. And one of the unfortunate realities is that for many neighborhoods, which are populated predominantly by people of color, it's not just that they're lacking nature, it's that they're being burdened with an oppressive and toxic level of pollution, as I just talked about with my professor at U of M, Dr. Paul Mohai. And so these two things very much go hand in hand, both the origin of the problem and also what the solutions might be and how imperative it is to bring everyone up to lift all boats and to alleviate that right. suffering that's been created. So keep up the the great work there. Um, I think the that now that we have all this evidence of the functional importance of nature, that is, it's good for our health, it's good for our our intelligence, it's good for our being functional as human beings, uh, that that the disparities in green cover across um, low income neighborhoods and in um, minority neighborhoods is a really important environmental justice issue, and that it's also um, it's possibly the next great urban public health focus because of all the things that we can do that are cheap <laughs> um, that have real impacts on people's health and functioning. Trees have got to be at the top. Yeah, I I know there's several organizations that are focused on replanting in urban environments. Uh, I think it, w- it was in Chicago. There's a Friends of the Urban Forest, maybe. Actually, I think that they're in San Francisco, but maybe they're operating in other cities. So yeah, yeah, lots of cities have them. Volunteering with that organization or others like it definitely will go a long way towards uh, making social progress. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, Dr. Quo, this has been wonderful. And I think we have a lot to learn from your research. And I'm really grateful that you took the time for this conversation today. Thank you. Thank you. If you're enjoying the All Things Connected podcast, there's many ways you can show your support. You can write a review on Apple Podcasts or on Stitcher, wherever you listen. You can share it with a friend or talk about it on your own podcast. You can post about it on social media, such as sharing your favorite episode. Or you can support it directly on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash all things connected. Thank you very much. 
Your support is much appreciated.